Hi everyone, welcome to Of Course China. I'm Ziv. I'm Fernando. And today we're here with uh, Lauren Heinold. Lauren is, uh, we're catching him on a business trip to Guangdong. Yep. He's the co-founder of a very sensational uh, snack that is a combination of baozi uh, and pizza. And his investor is Mark Cuban. Don't miss this episode. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right. Hey, Lauren. Thank you for being here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Cool. What brings you to uh, Guangdong, exactly? Uh, down here, meeting with customers uh, for Baozi. So, supermarkets, uh, restaurants, bars, cafes, schools. Right. Baozi. Okay. What Baoza. is exactly Baozi? So, Baozi is uh, it's a portmanteau, a uh, combination of pizza and Baozi. So, traditional Chinese steamed buns with a pizza filling. Okay, and we, we don't really know which one is which, right? You <laughs> we, have a few flavors? We do have a few flavors. So we basically took pizza and put it inside of a Chinese steamed bun. So we have pepperoni, margarita, barbecue chicken, spinach and cheese, roast duck. Basically anything that you can put on top of a pizza, we put inside of a baozi. Mm. Right. When we met a couple of days ago, after you told me the story, uh, I said, it's one of those things that you always say, how come I didn't think about that, yeah. right? I mean, it makes sense when you're how in China. You, how did you get to this idea? What brought you to this? Uh, it's, well, it's been a long journey. Um, uh -huh. It started off with my, my co-founder and partner. Uh, another American who's been in China for a long time. Both of us are foodies. We love pizza. We love baozi. He was actually in Guangdong on a business trip. He was consulting for a U.S. company. And uh, his client was an American who did not like Chinese baozi. And they were brainstorming about what could they put inside of a baozi to get this guy to try it. Uh, cheeseburger baozi, hamburger baozi, pizza baozi. And it was kind of a eureka moment where he was like, pizza baozi, baozi. So he actually went back to the hotel where they had a buffet. And they had pizza and they had baozi at the Hyatt Buffet in Guangzhou. He took a baozi, cut it open, scraped the fillings out, took a pizza, took the, the top off. Put it inside, had a microwave it, and that was the first ever baozi. Wow, that's uh, 2016? That was two, end of 2015. Uh, so we've gotten a lot more serious since then. Uh, we've had you know, well more than half a million people try it and pretty good feedback. But that's uh, that was the humble origin. Okay. Can we, maybe we, because yeah, it's, it's still warm. So I'll have this one. Oh no, you say you want so to. Yeah, so you I'll say, oh, still have. Cheese. It's like you got the you got right? the pepperoni. Yeah. You, you got touched the, it already. I'm not having it. <laughs> you got the barbecue chicken. Alrighty. And that must be the margarita left then. So this one is a margarita. Yep. Here's an interesting thing. Okay, you're gonna tell us about how this is actually made in a microwave and whatnot. Sure. Um, I was telling you earlier that when my mother-in-law makes a baozi. And you put it in the microwave because she makes like a ton and you got something there <laughs> she makes a ton and then we freeze it and then we put it in the microwave okay. it just doesn't feel like this sure what's what's the secret well if you can <laughs> share that <laughs> well there's yeah there's a lot going on there um it's uh it's it's different from you know in in china anywhere across the country you'll see the little stands in the morning that are hand wrapping them and then they're they're steaming them and you kind of grab and go while they're still while they're still hot yeah uh, all of our products are still hand-wrapped, um, but we're doing it on a larger scale. 
Uh, and the, the trick is that for us to sell, you know, to supply nationwide, to be able to have these products here in, in Dongguan, we have to freeze them and then yeah. reheat them. And the, the, the trick is really in the reheating process. So there's um, uh, probably the, the biggest the biggest secret, the biggest challenge was was in the dough. Getting, uh, getting the dough to the point where you could freeze it, you know, ship it nationally, internationally, and then reheat, you know, re-steam, reheat beautifully. And after not only just reheat uh, in the microwave, but be able to pan fry, fry well. deep fry, bake. Uh, so we worked with German food scientists, uh, Italian chefs, Chinese dough experts, uh, nutritionists to get to get a dough that would perform like that. Because so, yeah, particularly. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this does not feel at all like it's been microwaved. It feels quite a lot. I feel like, having the uh, just the microwave. Yeah, the steam one. one yeah. Right. Yeah. This this one was um, pan fried. Right. Mm. So, you like it? I like it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I don't like about Vatsa is that I'm not too crazy about the filling itself. So this is the sweet a great option, yeah. And those things, yeah. <laughs> How much does one of these cost um, at a shop? I mean, where are you selling them at the moment? So we're selling in, in two different channels. Uh, we're trying to make it as widely available to people as we can. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're selling it to the, the grocery channel. Uh, mm -hmm. So. Just down the street, a couple hundred, hundred meters away, you can go to Spar and pick them up in the, the freezer section. Mm -hmm. And that, those are the boxes that we had earlier. So right. you bring them home, put in your microwave or rice cooker or however you want to cook it. Uh, so that's uh, nationwide through offline uh, grocers as well as e-commerce platforms. Taobao. Koma, Taobao, all those kind of guys. Um, we are about to launch in the convenience store market. So uh, single serve. Where you, you grab it and put it in the microwave in the convenience store. Uh, they have powerful microwaves, so that's like 20 seconds, and you've got a hot hot bowl in the store. Much better than those stupid hot dogs and on mm. the, yeah. Know. So that's what we're competing with. <laughs> um, and then uh, our, our other channel is the, the food service channel. So we're selling to places that will then heat it up and serve it to their customers. Okay. So that's uh, that's cafes, uh, that's bars, restaurants, uh, schools. Uh, kind of all any, anyone that's serving food to their customers. Um, so we're selling a slightly different product. It's uh, heated in the same way. And then okay. our customers are then, they're deep frying it, they're uh, pan frying it, they're baking it, they're putting cheese on it, and they're baking it, and they're serving it to their customers. You say also there is a, uh, you say deep frying, right? Yep. And so do you have an idea how many locations in China right now? Oof. Is it like hundreds or thousands or? Uh, hundreds. Hundreds of yep. locations, right. And um, so what is the feedback you've been getting um, and how did it change the feedback over the years since the beginning to now? You know, we um, when we started this, uh, both of us uh, co-founders had other you know other projects we were doing, other other companies that we were involved in, and we kind of said, let's let's give this a shot. You know, it was a I like the idea, um, but before we really kind of took a deep dive and got serious, we wanted to have hundred thousand people try it. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty big sample size. So we started out just doing events. We were doing WeWork, co-working spaces uh, all across Beijing, uh, food festivals, music festivals, uh, you know, pizza, pizza fest, that kind of thing, uh, just to t talk to customers. So for all these events, we'd be we'd have our steamers and our team in the back steaming them and heating them, and then it'd be my partner Alex and I out front just talking to people and seeing what they thought about the products. And uh, we've gotten a bit more maybe sophisticated and nuanced in our understanding of the market, but it hasn't changed that much. And in, here in China, the single biggest uh, you know challenge for us and and point of feedback is that because it looks like such a common and you know widespread Chinese food that the baozi. Mm -hmm. uh, people immediately connected with that. 
you know, in uh, we're getting ready to launch Baozi USA. We're uh, exporting to Hong Kong, getting ready to export to Australia and the UK. And for for most Western countries that don't have you know such a widespread you know Baozi culture, uh, they think of it as a pizza product. But here uh -huh. in China, the first reaction is Baozi. Right. So, and, yeah. so okay. So you said something about uh, starting with events, right? Yep. So what you had a booth at those events as a vendor selling just a Baozi yep. booth, right? Um, so from end of 2015, your co-founder, right? He he had a eureka moment. Mm. Uh, how long it took you until you you started doing it in events? Our first event was July 6, 2016. Okay. Uh, so we, we did it at a co-working space. Uh, didn't really know what to expect. Uh, we brought a couple bouts of masters to hand wrap them on site. Uh, brought some steamers and we brought a DJ. So we wanted to be uh, sort of fun, you know, not not your traditional bouts of things. So we had DJ bouts of spinning as uh, as our hand, you know, we did our hand wrap bouts. DJ Bauza. DJ Bauza. Yeah. And and from that from that moment, at the end of 2015 until that's about six months, right? Yep. Um, what was that journey in the beginning? Like, what did did you need to invest money? Were you very serious about it? Were you preparing to get to a point where where you can do this at events? What was that like? Well, it started off pretty pretty low key. Uh, my partner Alex, uh, he and our friends that go way back to 2010 or so. Well, we were both living in Beijing, but by 2015 he he was back in Los Angeles. Uh, so. Came up there on a business trip here, went back to LA, and he actually taught himself how to make, how to wrap bouts, okay. uh, watching YouTube videos. Uh, so he started <laughs> off just with uh, focus groups, informal you know parties at his condo in, in LA, had friends come over, he'd make some pizza bouts, see if people liked it. Uh, so it was May 2016 where he left LA, moved to Beijing to just kind of give it a shot with me for the for the summer, uh, do events. So once he once he arrived on the ground in Beijing, it was a, a few months, uh, a month and a half, uh, until we did our first event. I, I think that for a lot of people, it might be interesting to know, and I would like to know how much you can share. Um, how do you go from a concept, from an idea, from a sample, from a focus group, and people liking it, and you scale it up to reaching hundreds of places in China? Mm. Um, how do you go about finding a factory? How do you go about certain? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how much money those is steps? needed? Yeah, this kind of thing. Sure. Well, we had a uh, we had a long and uh, kind of in interesting path to get where we are right now. Mm -hmm. uh, when when we started the started the company, uh, you know, even before there was a company, we we're doing events, and we both thought of this as really a retail concept, something where we'd open our own Bowser branded stores. Uh, we'd have our own Bowser workers serving serving Bowser in you know, airports, high traffic, uh, high foot traffic areas. And um, so we decided to test that out and we did, uh, we did just kind of short term rentals, uh, one place doing delivery, one place that was kind of a bar, um, we did a bar takeover. Uh, here in China. Here, uh, those were in Beijing. Okay. So we opened these stores and just to see if people liked it in that setting. And the short answer was, yeah, they did like it. Uh, but we were making everything by hand, uh, you know, get there early in the morning, start wrapping bounces, serve whatever we had that day and then next day do the same thing. Were you hands on? Were you making bouts it? You? Yourself? Personally? Yeah. Uh, I am not the... Or your I, partner? We, we hired people to do it. Okay. Uh, right. We can we can wrap bouts but they're not the prettiest ones in the world. Okay. There's, there's a lot of talent here in China. <laughs> you do know how to do it, but it's just not... It's, it's not beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, we can do it. Um, so we that, that was how we, we originally envisioned the brand. We thought that 
the product you're tasting now, the sort of hot pockets, you know, the frozen product would come, you know, many many years later. And uh, it it was uh, you know a lot of what we've you know where we are now comes from learnings we've gotten from from our customers and just from being out in the market. So we had our we had our first eight square meter little store, and we had one uh, uh, European customer who would come and buy 36 bouses at a time, take them home, freeze them, and then that was his breakfast every morning. And he would send us pictures in the morning of what the bounces looked like. And the, the, but that, that was time, not the original plan. It, no, he, he just... At that time, he didn't have the micro special bag. He's, no. It was a bit uh, different, right? Early. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it was a very, you know, 1.0 low-tech kind of thing. And we're like, that's that's pretty interesting, right? And then... Open um, opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we... we uh, we eventually decided that even for our own stores, that it was it was just too difficult to be you know quality control and to be making them inside the store. So we decided to go to you know uh, production facilities and you know produce them uh, centrally and then send them to our own stores. Mm-hmm. And then we decided, well, if we're doing that, we could also just package them and sell them in the supermarket channel. Um, mm-hmm. So we it was kind of an indirect route to get where we are. Uh, I would say you know if I could go back and do everything over, we probably would have skipped the retail part. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, I, I love being able to serve baozi in a restaurant and I love, you know, having deep fried and, and pan fried and all these different options, but I'd rather someone else be doing it sure. and focus on what we're really good at. Don't you think that, uh, I mean, I mean, first of all, those, those experiences are probably priceless, right? You gotta mm-hmm. go through them to, uh, to figure out what's the best way. Sure. But also, isn't it that, uh, having them in, in, uh, restaurants, bars, it supports in marketing. It supports the actual other distribution. Sure, I mean we one of the one of the brands that we look at as a good example is Hagandas. Mm-hmm. You know, Hagandas has they have, they have branded restaurants where you can go in and you know, sort of have an experience and eat in that sort of setting. But then they're also they're selling in the supermarkets. They're selling in convenience stores. You can buy them on the China National Railway, right? Yeah. Uh, so multi-channel brand. That that was kind of how we described ourselves as multi-channel not not just the freezer section not just the restaurants and bars. so the milestone the 2016 you started serving it at events and then you said going into uh, uh restaurants stores. when was that uh well we were still running our own restaurants uh until last year uh mm-hmm. we had a we opened a place in shanghai uh we had a franchise in shanghai as well and we it was really last uh last year 2019 that we entered had our first supermarket sale uh, and then restaurants and bars were around around the same time. So, at one point, at which point did you start manufacturing? You know, producing it in a in a factory, like packaged. What, when was that? That was well, so we, we moved to factory production just to support our own stores. Um, okay. That was so end of twenty eighteen, beginning of twenty nineteen, and before we got to the point where we were ready to pull the trigger and produce, we spent a lot of time in the factories. So mm-hmm. we went to. We worked with eventually seven different factories, starting from a state-owned factory in Beijing, and kind of moved around until we found the right the right partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the factory world was a very new world for both of us, uh, so there was a lot of a lot of learnings just figuring out how does this whole thing work. Right? I was coming from a restaurant background, which is very different story to go into the kitchen, whip something up. You know, if it's not quite perfect, you just tweak it and add a little bit more salt. But doing but something, industrial size if you're producing 10,000 at a time, you really got to, you know, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> is it a Bautza factory? Most of our partners have been kind of specifically focused on Bautza, uh, but they, they often will also do noodles or Jiaozi or other dough-based products. I wanted to ask you a question. I mean, and I think that that might be something that might be interesting to a lot of people. Um, how do you protect your idea legally in China? 
that's that's the topic of controversy around the world. This is something new. Mm. Dare I say, relatively easy to replicate. Mm. How do you handle that? Uh, I wouldn't call it easy to replicate. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, yeah. you know, you, you do what you can. Uh, yeah. Before uh, before Alex moved from LA to Beijing, before we sold the first Baozi, we'd already gone out, registered the website, you know, registered the trademarks uh, in, in Chinese and in English. Uh, that's kind of a basic basic level of protection because mm -hmm. for us, the, the name was pretty important. The, the name, you know, it's Baozi, you know, Baozi Pizza. So the name is really, the name is the product. Uh, so that was one thing we wanted to lock down. And we've since gone on to register about the uh, trademarks in other countries. Uh, after that, in terms of the actual product, I mean, it's, it's kind of difficult to prevent someone from putting pizza inside of a steam bun, right? Uh, so the, the secret sauce for us is, is in the dough. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent a lot of time doing the dough. Uh, and to your point earlier, you know, why didn't I think of this? We, we've talked to a lot of pizza, pizza restaurant owners who had thought of it and they tried it, but they just never got the dough right. Because mm -hmm. it's not a, a baozi dough, it's also not a pizza dough. And ne mm -hmm. neither, neither baozi dough nor pizza dough works really in this kind of environment. But this is interesting to, to understand for our viewers, right? I mean, yeah, when you don't think about it, you think, oh yeah, I mean, this place is an Italian restaurant here mm. and they can just make it now, but it's not true. It's not yeah. that simple. They make calzones, but that dough is very different from this. Right, it's a different dough. It's, it can steam in the same way, right? Maybe they can figure out how to do it, right? But anyway, referring to Fernando's question, so someone can come tomorrow, figure out how to do this dough, and call it pizza pockets, and come out with something. I mean, they can call it bauza because that's protected. Mm. But the actual food, um, if someone else figured it out, they can just do it, right? I mean, that's, uh, we've already had that happen. People already have copied copied our products. Uh, here in China, also in Milan, Italy, uh, it's someone moved from Shanghai to Milan and they just copied the product. Uh, so, you know, good luck to them. Uh, that's, uh, you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, right? And we, we expect that to happen. Uh, so the, I mean, beyond beyond the trademarks, the, what we can do is just making the best possible products, uh, getting out there quickly, and really building a brand. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's more than one. You know, McDonald's is not the only place that makes hamburgers, right? Right. Sure. Right. Hagenaz is not the only ice cream on the market. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So we expect to be copied, uh, and we're really just focused on what we control, which is making a good product and making a fun brand. I want to talk about um, Mark Cuban. Sure. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting story. Yeah, because um, to me, when we were researching for this, we were like, wow, okay, that's that big league. How did he come into your organization? At what point? Uh, how did you get to him? How did he get to you? I don't know. Yeah, so uh, it was early 2017, and we were trying to trying to raise some money. Um, both Alex and I are former investment bankers, so we had a you know pretty fundraising deck. But we were also we we're two Americans in China trying to make baozi, and uh, so we we're casting a pretty wide net in terms of who we approached, and we knew that Mark, uh, you know. Beyond Shark Tank, which we did not go on, we know that he takes a look at a lot of early stage companies. So we just figured out his Dallas Mavericks email address and sent a cold email. You figured it out. You told me you just guessed it. I, Alex is the one that sent the email uh, just to the public, you know, uh, DallasMavs.com address and sort of said what we're doing here in China. And he responded pretty quickly and uh -huh. said, you know, send, here's my private email address, send me your business plan. Uh, so he uh, he does a lot of work by email, and uh -huh. we had a lot of correspondence. Um, he had a he had a guy who's doing business development for him here in China that mm -hmm. uh, we met in January, and for the next ten months he proceeded to kind of 
take our temperature, check in, see the progress, really check us out. So it wasn't just a boom, you know, one email and we're done. Uh, it was a long process with a lot of information shared. But 10 months was enough for them to kind of get comfortable with us and sort of see, you know, buy into our vision for, for where we've got, we're going to bring the company. Um, was that a defining moment for your company? I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was important, yeah. Um, you know, at the time, the, the money itself was pretty important. Uh, it was also just a nice validation. Um, we went on to raise raise money from some other investors, and it's just a, a stamp of you know confidence, right? Was, if, was there ever talks about going in to the show, the Shark Tank show? There really wasn't a need for it. I mean, okay. if, if we're able to go, I mean, we were, we were both based in China at the time, mm -hmm. right? So if we're able to you know deal with this team, and and we're already in the process, so there wasn't really a need to go on the show. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, we were, uh, we were dealing most, mostly with, you know, one, one guy in the team and mm -hmm. kind of post-investment, we got plugged in more to it, to his network and resources. He does a lot of food investment in the U.S. Does Mark Cuban uh, have a constant supply now of Bauza? Did he try it? He has tried it. Uh, he likes it. What's um, his feedback? He likes it. Uh, not selling it at the stadium, at the Dallas Mavericks? Not yet. Not yet. They probably um, will. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, Really, up until recently, we've just been just been here in China. Um, mm -hmm. Alex moved back to Los Angeles uh, just about six weeks ago mm -hmm. to get our Baozi USA launched. So we'll soon have a more steady supply of Baozi available in the U.S. So I want to, okay, a lot of people, uh, you know, in China, foreigners like us, we tend, the ones that stay for many years, a lot of them tend to start their own businesses, right? Mm. Small, medium, large. Uh, this kind of idea, it's very unique. Well, I told you the other day, right? Um, and I wonder, how much money is involved in doing that? Like, how much money is needed? Or this is something that changes with, with, from the beginning and the middle? I mean, it depends, depends a lot on, on what you're doing, right? Right. Um, you know, for... Food manufacturing, you know? So, I mean, food, food manufacturing, like the kind of products we're doing, is different from restaurants. I mean, if you're opening a restaurant, you're, you're taking on a lease, right? You're buying all the equipment. There's more, more CapEx and more... More spending up front uh, for this product. You know, we we did definitely put some money in, into the restaurants that we opened. Uh, the actual factory factory manufacturing that was not that was not too crazy. Uh, we we've run this really as, as a lean startup, so we've kept overhead low. Uh, we've been pretty smart about spending money. So, you know, if you look back at the money that went specifically into developing this product, it wasn't a crazy amount. Um, you know, there were like any startup, there are things that we could have not done and we probably would have done differently if we can go back in time but uh, it's not a, not a huge amount of money to get it to get it up and running um, it's really about how you spend your money uh, mm -hmm. there you know China has a lot of manufacturing so I've been you know been part of other companies been an advisor to other companies that are also doing manufacturing of sunglasses and things like that uh, it's you know if you find the right partner uh, who's willing to do smaller quantities of production up front you get a product to market fairly fairly quickly and, and fairly cheaply. Is it fair to say that it's uh, way easier and cheaper to start this kind of business in China than in the US? Uh, yes, yes and no. Um, you know, we're, we're going through a similar process in the US now that we did here in China. And obviously having the experience here, we're you know, skipping a lot of the steps and you know, doing it much, much faster, much smarter in the US. Are you uh, going to manufacture in the U.S. or are you yeah. going to export? Manufacture in the U.S. Oh, okay. Why, why this choice? Why not just continue from here and export it? That was something we took a, we took a look at, certainly. Um, especially earlier this year, you know, when 
in the U.S. Uh, for a while, I mean, still now actually, frozen pizza became the new toilet paper. You know, it was it was running out. People are staying at home. Mm. People are ordering. I mean, frozen sales in general were way up. Frozen pizza was way way up. And we're like, okay, we can. Our factory here is licensed to export, so we could just put stuff on a on a reefer, send it to the U.S. And we decided for for a few reasons that we didn't. You know, the U.S. was going to be a big enough market for us that doing a made in China food product was not the right call. Uh, so it was worth it to be patient, wait a little bit, you get kind of made in the USA, Bauza stood up. At what point do you think you may want to open your own factory, or is this what's going to happen in the US? That's uh, that's a possibility for the US. Um, you know, a big difference between China and the US is that just in terms of manufacturing capacity, uh, there are hundreds, thousands of factories here in China that do Bauza manufacturing. In the US, there are fewer than ten. Mm. So there aren't as many aren't as many choices there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's you know we have to look at the geography, uh, you know how we're gonna we're gonna produce where we're gonna ship to, and also just the ultimate capacity. I mean you don't have anywhere close to the same demand in the U.S. for for steamed dough products. Mm-hmm. So you have factories here. I mean the Chinese people are eating well more than 50 billion baozi per per year, and the uh, you know with with government regulations and um, you know kind of crackdowns on small vendors. A lot of the manufacturing is being pushed to factory manufacturing. So there's huge, there's a huge capacity here that there's not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., you know, assuming things go well, and we think they will, then at some point, you know, depending on timing, probably we'll be looking at doing our own manufacturing. Right. Um, this looks like something that can explode. I mean, this is a business that uh, has a very high ceiling. I think you know worldwide, right? Um, What other markets uh, are you looking at going into? So we are. I mean, we, we see the U.S. and China as the the two core markets, uh, and that's where we'll be physically based. Uh, the two of us. Uh, we have gotten we've gotten interest. Um, I mean, we've had we've been on national TV in 20 some countries, and um, we when we we're uh, we we're opening a little little joint, we ran a little joint in the Hutongs in Beijing, and someone flew up from the Philippines just to try Bowser. They saw us on Filipino national TV. Uh, so we've gotten we've gotten interest from kind of all over Southeast Asia, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, UK, Germany. So we do this we do see this as a global product, um, but we are a we're pretty early stage company, and there's only so many hours in the day. So in, in the in the end, if you have a manufacturing uh, hub uh, in China, in Asia. And then one in U.S., then you can export from either one. What makes sense to other countries, right? True. We uh, we're also looking at other other places in Asia for a second Asian manufacturing hub. Okay. Uh, there are exporting from China is not the easiest thing. Uh, it's especially for food. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of surprising because people think of China as you know, that's where manufacturing happens, but uh, China itself is really strict when it comes to exporting food. It's actually uh, more difficult to export uh, a food product from China than it is to import it into the other country, um, and there is there is still a little bit of a, a stigma attached to made in China food products. Just remarkable. I mean, people not many people know this. Not many people um, would believe this mm-hmm. <laughs> that it is it is highly regulated here in China and that they take a lot of care about what's going out actually. I mean, the, the, the government, world. the government cares about the image of, of China, and having bad food products go out and, and poison and someone is, is really a black eye for the country. So mm-hmm. they are they're stricter than you can than you'd probably think. Uh, but at the same time, there is I mean we're, we're seeing this already in some markets. Um, there is kind of a stigma about made in China food products that mm-hmm. you know the rest of the you know the rest of the, the countries that 
where China can export food, a lot of them don't know that there's these stricter standards. So made in China is a really uh, safe food product. Uh, so not for every market. Uh, some, some care more or less. But there are some markets that we think we'd be better served by probably having manufacturing outside of China. Um, most people that have been out there uh, in America or in China would say that Chinese food made in America is very different than Chinese food in China is different. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how do you source ingredients to manufacture in the U.S. and what are the differences and what do you need to be careful about? But we're going to do that when we come back after this short break. Right, so we are back with Lauren. Lauren, um, continue talking a little bit about Baozi, uh, right? And Baozi, and your plan to um, manufacturing in the United States. Um, do you have a timeline for that specifically? And as we were saying earlier, uh, products that are made in China and products that are made in America are seen as not being authentic. Like if you go to have fried rice in China or whatever, sorry, in America, like oh, this is not a real thing. Um, how are you guys tackling that particular perception? Well, there's there's no such thing as a really authentic baozi. I mean, we, we are the authentic baozi, right? Okay. It's not a it's not Italian. It's not Chinese. It's a it's a, it's a fusion product, right? Mm -hmm. So that's. Uh, that's less of an issue for us. Uh, there's and our, our product is going to be very similar in the U.S. to China. We're not doing U.S. flavorings. I mean, you tried the you tried the pepperoni and the barbecue chicken. Those I mean those work for Western palates the same they do for Chinese. So there's some there'll be some difference in terms of the ingredient selection. Uh, there's some just I mean the U.S. has more more ingredients available for pizza type fillings, right? There's just more options for mozzarella cheese. Uh, for pepperoni, we want to go, you know, nitrate-free, uncured, those kind of things. There's a lot of a lot of selection in the U.S. market that just there aren't that many kinds of pepperoni you can buy in China. Mm -hmm. So there's you know, ingredient ingredient availability will affect that a bit. Um, in terms of the the timing for the U.S., so uh, my my partner there has been just at the factory, uh, you know, the last uh, last few weeks. You know, Fillings factory is the Bowser factory working on, you know, getting that, that stood up, and we're looking for kind of January, February to be in the market with the products. Oh, really? Yep. That quick. Um, and uh, you're going for which distribution channels exactly in the U.S.? In the U.S.? Uh, Can you talk about that? I don't know. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, we are going to be uh, certainly doing the supermarket channel, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot more a lot more developed uh, than, than here in China. Uh, there's just... There's tens and tens of thousands of U.S. supermarkets that would kind of be a fit for our products, and a much more limited number here in China that, that are a great fit. Um, we'll be doing some some D to C, uh, direct to consumer. Uh, you know, shipping shipping frozen internationally direct to your home. Uh, doing that through a, through a partner uh, rather than rather than doing it ourselves. Do you do you in the U.S. supermarkets? I'm assuming it will be next to the frozen pizzas rather than next to the Chinese, Chinese. section? That's that, a good choice. I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, or...? That's, that's, that's a good question. I mean, we, we have our internal answers, uh, our internal thoughts right now, and we're working with, you know, branding and, and sales and distribution people there. Uh, we're also doing uh, doing a kind of full-blown market market survey, you know, uh, more like online online focus groups kind of things. Uh, really, positioning is, positioning is pretty key. And it's just such a different perception of the product for a Western consumer that's not familiar with Bao versus a Chinese consumer. So, 
you know, here in China, uh, we have, in general, uh, in the supermarkets, we've tried to go into the pizza section. Mm -hmm. um, we started off doing that, and then we actually found we were getting better results when we were in there next to the, the jiaozi and the baozi, the Chinese buns, because we just compared favorably. You know, it was a lot, lot sexier, more colorful-looking packaging. Mm -hmm. So some of the supermarkets where we sell best are ones where we're positioned right next to the Chinese steam buns here. Uh, in the U.S., I think that's, if you get too far in the, you know, the Asian section, you become a bit more of a niche product, and we, we see this really as a mainstream product. So uh, the U.S. does have a lot of options for single-serve, microwavable pizza products, M microwavable or oven uh, pizza products. Are you, are you planning to, are you at least thinking of more food products around that? Like, I don't know, popcorn balsa, like the popcorn chicken, maybe mm. smaller or bigger or... Or you're going to have 20 flavors in the U.S. Maybe after you know that it's doing well. Uh, mm. I mean, you have—is it something you discuss? <laughs> sure. Uh, we have a we have an R&D team. We have yeah. a pretty robust pipeline of, of things coming out, and that is everything from new flavors. Uh, mm -hmm. So, we, we've done we've done 20, 30 different types of bauta. Uh, so. We've done like a spicy Cajun, or Raging Cajun, uh, mushroom chicken with bechamel sauce. We've done spicy Hawaiian jalapeno. Uh, just anything that you can put on top of a pizza, you can put inside the baozi. So definitely more flavors. Um, we've done different sizes. We've done mi mini baozi, which are more like little kind of poppers, uh, you know, 30, 40 grams. Um, we also have a dessert line we've been working on, which is a different dough, uh, kind of a chocolate lava bao. So, Cocoa in the cocoa in the dough, uh, mm -hmm. sweet dough, and the inside just a rich, gushy chocolate lava. I want it right now. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about uh, uh, the pricing? We didn't even talk about the pricing. I mean, this package uh, of two balsa right yep. now in China is about twenty renminbi, right? You yep. said, which is about three US dollar. About yep. that, a little right? over three, right? I mean, what is the plan for the US? How much something? I'm, I was trying to think how much something like this would cost. What would be acceptable? Sure. So that's that's another thing we're working through right now. Right. Uh, we'll have a definitive answer before we launch, obviously. Um, but I think the goal is to the goal is to keep the the two pack under five bucks. Okay. Um, how much under five? We'll we'll see. I think one of the one of the things that we're you know while we are going to be compared to a hot pockets and to some of these other existing products. We're really going for a better quality products. Uh, so if you if you look at the ingredient list for some of these guys, yeah, they're hundreds of ingredients long, and half the ingredients you can't you can't pr pronounce, right? Right. Um, and we're not doing additives. We're not doing preservatives. We're keeping our ingredient list really short. So we're going for a healthier, more wholesome product that does you know we, we use premium ingredients and we expect it to command a higher price point than some of these mass produced. So usually the, the the cheaper food is more crap. Right. Mm. So you, that's about positioning, right? Positioning in the market. Positioning, and I mean, we, we do have to take into account our, our own cost at the start. Uh, but I think we want to make it affordable. We not, uh, we neither one of us wants to be super premium that only a small section of the people can can buy. But we're talking about under five dollars for for a two pack. That's not not crazy prices. You think? I mean, you think it in the U.S. is possible that you will have it in a rest in restaurants and bars like here? Because, I mean, you. I mean, from one hand, I guess it depends on the kind of restaurants that may use frozen fries mm. or, you know, something like that. But are you planning to do that? or? That is something uh, that's something we're looking at. Um, Matt, like it, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, that we face and we face from day one is just 
how many hours are there in a day? How many people do we have to focus on this? And where does our focus need to be? So we think that the, the CPG channel, you know, frozen products sold in supermarkets is just such a, a big possibility that we don't want to get a, we don't want to spread our team too thin. Yeah. Um, we, Alice was having a conversation two days ago with someone that wants to specifically sell Bowza to the food service channel. So we're, we're open to that. We think that, uh, I mean, we, we see it working here in China. I mean, we have you know, lots of cafes, restaurants, bars that were a staple item on their menu, and their customers like it. So we, we think it would work in the U.S. It's just a question of you know, when, when do we do that? You know, do we do the same product? Or like here in China, we're doing slightly different products for the two channels. Um, but ultimately, yeah, and I think that compared to a Hot Pockets, you wouldn't want to go into your bar or restaurant and get a frozen pizza or a frozen Hot Pocket served no. to you. But we're trying to make the kind of a little bit more premium, more interesting, more gourmet product that, that works in both. Right. Um, you were talking earlier about how to actually prepare the balsa. So we shot some B-roll that we're going to be showing uh, at this point how it works. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the, the different kinds of microwaves and the challenges that there are mm. and the kind of training that, I mean, you're here doing training or just, just business meetings? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, okay. So I'm training our distributor. Uh, okay. on and their sales team mm -hmm. on how they should just explain the product to their own customers right? mm -hmm. um, going to some meetings myself so I was you know I was in the kitchen in a bunch of different bars and restaurants yesterday in, in Guangzhou so mm -hmm. sort of showing their chefs how to prepare it uh, we can do that for the, the food service channel I obviously can't go into every customer's home and and make them <laughs> their bows for them so we have instructions on the back of the box we have you know QR codes with videos that show you how to how to cook this um, User error has definitely been a thing. Um, our, uh, the ones that you tried have kind of a special technology uh, steamer bag where it goes straight from, the, straight from the freezer into the microwave and it won't explode. Uh, There's steam vents that release the steam. Mm -hmm. our, uh, that's sort of a 2.0 or 3.0 version. The 1.0, you had to tear a little hole. And we had customers that wouldn't tear a hole so the bag would explode. Customers that would rip a huge hole and the thing would dry out. So we were just leaving too much up to chance. Uh, so that there are all these little details that go into this kind of a consumer product that you know, are not obvious from the outside, but they're important to it actually working well for the customer in their own environment. You yeah. think a restaurant like this, I mean, this is, I would say, nice Italian. upscale Italian-owned Italian restaurant. Mm. Do you have restaurants like this in China that sell your product? Sure. That that's surprising, I, I would say, I guess. I mean, one of our one of our best customers is a group in Beijing. Uh, I mean, they're they're selling foie gras. They're selling really oh. fancy stuff. Uh, it's owned by a Belgium guy. Uh, it's in, you know, the the Taiguli in, right in San Lituan. You know, very fashionable, upscale kind of place. Uh, you can easily go there and spend you know two, three, four, five hundred RMB per person, and they sell a lot of Belgium. <laughs> nice. So just before we, my next question, I do want to give a shout out to this place. We're here right now in yeah. uh, Matti Bistro, an Italian restaurant in Dongguan, one of the more well-known uh, places. Thank you for letting us use your outdoor space. Yep. <laughs> so, okay, I want to ask uh, uh, back to like the, the money part, the, the investors, and you are uh, by trade uh, investment banker, right? Yep. Right. You've done it for many years. Hmm. Um, and uh, so when you when you have a business like this and when you talk to someone like Mark Cuban or other investors, right, when they invest, um, is, are there any discussions about like predefined goals? What is the goal of this business? Okay, like we want to sell it in two or three years or, you know, stuff like that. I want to ask how it works. Sure. 
so yeah, that, that's the background I'm coming from, and you know, I definitely use some of those some of those skills or experience, and just when we were setting out uh, and you know thinking about what are we building, what are we building to, for sure. Um, I will say that uh, our our investors have been have been pretty great. Uh, they've been they've been patient, and and they really what we sold them on. Uh, you know what we honestly believe is we're we're selling this story, and we're, yeah. th- this is something that we really think can go global and can be a household thing, right? So when you're when you're looking at that kind of a big picture, you know people coming in early, uh, it wasn't about you know counting the pennies for what was exactly last month's revenue and what, what was your month on month growth, right? Because th- those are really you know missing the forest for the trees. Uh, so that's um, you know all of our investors and, and Mark uh, as well have been you know, pretty patient as we build this. And you know, and along the way, we were kind of figuring out for ourselves, okay, there's, you know, there's a difference between a product and, and a business. So we started with the product, but then it took us a while to figure out what is the business for this product. So I think we're, we're at a point where we feel comfortable that we have a pretty good answer to that, but it, it took a while. Um, so we don't have, uh, we don't have, you know, we have to hit this by the end of this year or, or you know, X by the end of this year, um, Y by the end of next year. It's sort of we're building something pretty big, uh, being being smart with how we how we spend our money. Um, you know, we we're both pretty aggressive people that want this thing to go big and go fast, but there's also the right the right sort of timing and pace to do that. Are you still looking for more investors? Uh, are there opportunities to invest with Bauza? There are some. Uh, we uh, we're still we're still you know in discussions. Partners or. Uh, less so right now. I mean, we're we're open to we're open to investors. Uh, you know, period. That's um, uh, you know d- depends on what they're going to bring to the table. Uh, ideally, someone who's bringing more than just money. Um, so, right before this meeting, I was on the phone with one of our shareholders who is helping us with the, the market research uh, and really understanding the CPG market and the U.S. customer. Uh, most of the people that have come in, come into Bauza as investors have been people that add something else, right? So. People that are coming from a marketing background and can be advisors as well. When when it's an investor and he does some actual work, do they get a salary too, or? Uh, no. It depends. No. no. Uh, okay. in, in general, no. Okay. Um, that's uh, you know, it's it's on a case by case basis. Right. Um, right. It depends on their level of involvement, but for for most people, the expectation is that they're investing in the company and they also want to see it. They want to see it succeed, right? Right. So they they get more out of having the company succeed than they would from just a small, you know small consulting right. um, a silly question but an important question how has COVID thrown a curveball to your business mm. it's uh, it's been a multi-layered curveball uh, at the beginning it was just you know our team was here in China we had our, our marketing lady who was stuck in, in Yunnan in southwest China uh, we had other team members who were stuck in different cities and we couldn't be in the, the same office um, so we went to You know, we're, we're pretty pretty nimble, and we just switched to WeChat calls every single morning. Right? So, <laughs> got everyone in different parts of the country on WeChat calls. Managed to work pretty well remotely. Uh, our factory was shut down um, for a while. Uh, you know, this this happened right during Chinese New Year when that was they were are going to be shut already going to be shut down. <clears throat> But then even after Chinese New Year, extended. it was extended. Workers came back. They had to be quarantined. Um, you know, the the on the more more positive side was that. Uh, China and just like the U.S. and around the world, you know, during during COVID, people are stuck at home. Frozen sales, you know, online grocery, all those sales all went up, and we were seeing an uptick in orders. But our warehouse in Shanghai was in a district that happened to be quarantined itself. So this small district in Shanghai 
there were no vehicles allowed in or out. <clears throat> so we had sold out all of our products on all the online platforms and we couldn't, couldn't get product done. because we literally could not get a truck into this, this community. Um, so that, that was just kind of really tangible effects at the beginning. Um, you know, we, uh, it was a mixed bag for us. Uh, you know, grocery sales were up, but then we, we do sell to hotels and restaurants and bars that were pretty negatively affected. Mm-hmm. So the grocery went up, but those you know, on-premise sales went down. Um, you know, for the U.S., the original plan was to have started the U.S. earlier than we did, but it was just not a great situation to have Alex go back into. So we, we waited a little bit on sending, sending it back just because stepping into a mess. Um, you know, some, of the, some of the partners we were going to work in, with in the U.S., they were going bankrupt or going through big layoffs. Uh, there was a lot of just a lot of chaos uh, in, in the supply chain there. And the U.S. was, was split between some, you know, some factories or other you know, production partners. Some were going, just going gonzo, really busy because they were supplying the, the supermarket channel. Some were having a lot of pain because they were supplying the food, food service and restaurant channel. Um, <clears throat> on a, you know, so beyond China and the U.S., we have been trying to get products uh, to some of these other countries to, <clears throat> to export. And just frozen shipping uh, internationally became a lot more challenging during COVID. And expensive. And ex- well, uh, expensive is one thing, but just not even possible. Um, mm. So things that would have been easy before, uh, whether it be shipping, you know, shipping via DHL, FedEx, whatever, or you know, just giving someone who's traveling to country country X, giving him some bottles to take on the plane, that all just went away. So we've been trying to get product to Singapore for months now, and just have not been able to get product from point A to point B. So that did slow down some of the international development a little bit. Right. How do you how do you see? Um, <clears throat> political atmosphere uh, in the U.S. Uh, affecting your business? Not at all. What do you expect? Uh, I mean, there, are, there is some impacts. Um, you know, this is less of a political atmosphere thing, but just some of the tariffs that went into place. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we're not exporting Baozi from China to the U.S., but some of our packaging, some of the other things that go into the product are, are things that we do make here. So that's gotten a bit more expensive, uh, just tariffs being slapped on products coming from China. Cheese, um, going here? Cheese uh, has not had as much of an impact. Um, I mean, not, not for those reasons. Uh, in the U.S., cheese has been really, the, the, the prices have been really up, up and down, mostly up because of the, the pandemic. Um, it's not really a political thing. Uh, I will say that, you know, the situation, the, it's not the best it's not the highest point in U.S.-China relations uh, right now. So that's one thing that, you know, in terms of how the brand is perceived, made in China versus made in the USA, it was something, you know, in the, in the back of our minds for sure. Something to think about. So I wanted to ask about, um, you know, your background. Mm. Um, like I told you when we took a break, right? Like it must be that, uh, you know, like you being an investment banker, you studied in Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what did you study there? Uh, East Asian studies. East so. Asia studies, right? Yep. And you have uh, you've come to China first time 2001, 2000, or something like that, right? Yep. So you've been in Ch- you've been in China for a while, right? You also have you own a, a chain of Mexican restaurant in Beijing, which we haven't even mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you got f- some kind of food background. You got investment background. You speak Chinese. Is it like a combination of everything that uh, probably helped you being successful with this brand? I mean, sure. There's you know a lot of you, know, you, you learn from your experiences, right? And I, I definitely had some experiences that were relevant. Um, 
I don't think there was I don't think there was a single person in China uh, when we started this that had any experience in making pizza baozi. So you know I, I couldn't have been that well prepared for certain aspects of it. But um, yeah, definitely from the the finance side, you know, knowing how to just how, how to manage cash flow. Uh, and you know there were some there were some tough times, and you know we were pretty you know we had modeled everything out. We knew exactly when we were gonna run out of money or what we had what we had to do to keep the company alive. So just being a bit you know familiar with with the whole finance aspect uh, was, was helpful. Um, and part of you know doing investment banking or consulting was just working with a lot of a lot of clients. And I mean I worked with uh, with companies in 15 countries, probably at least 25, 30 different industries. So you just you just see a lot, and you see a lot of business models. You see what works, what doesn't. So that definitely informed you know some of our our, our thinking about what what to do and what not to do. No. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I wanted to um, go into something that we talked when we were in the kitchen. We were talking about ingredients, and um, uh, you were talking about uh, the different processes to to get kind of like a license to sell food in China. Is it similar or different from uh, the U.S., for example? Are there more requirements from the Food and Drug Administration? Um, how do they compare the Chinese Food and Drug Administration and the American one? I would say in general, China is stricter. Uh, China. This is a shocker to China a lot of stricter, people. You say? China is yes. stricter. Huh. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're very different systems, and uh -huh. uh, the U.S. has a lot more, uh, a lot more access to to lawsuits. So there's you know, in, between in insurance and the courts, there's there's those repercussions. So if you don't, you know, if you don't make a good product, you can be sued, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's a whole lot of lawsuits that happen in, in the U.S. So. There's that sort of that sort of uh, stick happening here. Mm. In China, there's um, there certainly are, are lawsuits. There's a you know robust legal system, but uh, China steps in a little bit earlier mm. to really regulate the, the whole production. Um, mm. So it's we were surprised ourselves. Um, just some of the some of the challenges on the on the regulatory side here, the strictness about labeling, mm. um, really really strict labeling requirements. So we have a we have a labeling consultant and lawyer that reviews, you know, every every inch of every box that goes out, mm -hmm. and you know we uh, we send a box. You know we're gonna we, we change the design to the, the current one, and came back with like 16 different things that had to be changed. Uh, it's, it's a match up with Chinese. You uh, Chinese has to be larger than English uh, every time we're both appear, unless okay. unless it's part of a trademarked image. Um, there are certain requirements that. The net weight has to be above a certain amount of uh, millimeters. Um, that the font has to be above a certain amount of millimeters. Uh, there's a lot of things about the, the the words that you're able to use to describe your product. So we have a lot of um, for that the, the pepperoni is actually salami right now, and uh, the, the yeah. So I mean, it's Europeans might say salami more, in America you say pepperoni more often. Uh, but for us to be able to say pepperoni in Chinese, we had to call it. Uh, versus salami balsa. <laughs> so you just took the decision. We went with salami, yeah. Uh, and there were there were specific regulatory issues why we had to you know call pepperoni that name. Uh -huh. So there are challenges with this kind of uh, in this area here, and there are challenges in the US. They're just maybe not exactly the same details, but they're not exactly the same. I mean, for for the US, we're working with. With uh, co-packers, co you know OEM OEM relationships, where they've been doing this for a long time, it's a really smooth process. So there's not much heavy lifting that we have to do as a brand. 
Right, so it's more, uh, you can get more help with uh, from ex experienced company service providers there, right? And here you had to kind of to figure it out a lot of it by yourself. We, we did, and, and part, of, part of that was coming from, I mean, we're making a product that no one else was making in China. Right? So the Baozi factories, uh, I mean, some of these guys are doing millions, tens of millions of, of their Baozi every month. Uh, so they're, it's not like they're unfamiliar with, with regulations, but none of them had ever put cheese inside. Mm. or tomato sauce inside. Mm. So they had to go back to their licenses and add cheese uh, to their, you know, to their license of uh, things they could produce. Did those first days at the factory, did they look at you like, what? Cheese? What do you want to put inside? We, we got some, some, yeah, some raised eyebrows for sure. <laughs> How about marketing? For the, I mean, brand is, a, I think a lot of it is about marketing, right? Mm. Um, how do you do it now in China and how and how is it different at all doing it in, in the Western countries, in the USA? So, uh, I mean, we have definitely different strategies. I mean, there, there are different, there's just different social media platforms. Mm -hmm. China has its own ecosystem that, that the US doesn't. So there's some that are, some that are shared. You know, Instagram, even though it's not, not something you know, that you can easily access here. I noticed that you have two Instagram accounts. We have more than two. Uh, right. We have Hong Kong, China, the US. We've registered several other countries as well. Um, so in Instagram is something that, that does kind of cut across uh, cut across uh, geographies. Uh, so that's going to be um, we're still early days here, but that'll be sort of managed in the U.S. and most mostly shared content, a little bit of China specific content. But like you, 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 that it's you know it's defined with your audience first, right? Like who do you target? So like, do you use TikTok? You use the wind, so I try to get younger people. I mean, are you like how does it is it different audience a bit uh, in here and in the US that you expect to have? I mean, it, it's it's a relatively similar audience uh, between the two. I mean, you, uh, you know, when we first started, you know, we were, we were thinking through the issue of who are our customers, right? And we we're going to these events, talking to thousands, tens of thousands of people, and seeing their feedback. and. The feedback was generally pretty positive across the board, from you know Chinese to foreign, no matter what country you're coming from. College just, students, families. And the the one thing that was very clear is that here in China, especially the correlation between age and how much they like the product. Mm -hmm. You get above you know get above 35, 40, and the interest level goes way down. And it really correlates to you know how long has pizza been available here in China? Mm -hmm. uh, it been been widespread, and how common is cheese? So. When if you're looking at kids who are five, six years old, for them, cheese is a normal thing. Pizza yeah. is a normal thing. Let's, you know. So U.S. will be different, right? Uh, I mean, 50, 60 year old. I mean, pizza has been there forever. Yes. So there's, there's right. not going to be that that sort of you know stark age uh, age barrier, age kind of um, you know difference in, in the U.S. Right. Um, but the, I mean, the product itself, especially for the the consumer product, it has a similar kind of similar appeal in both countries, which is that like you saw, it's it's really convenient. You know, it's in the U.S. It's even faster in a microwave. So you're looking at 45 to 60 seconds in a microwave. So for someone who's on the go, you know, you're a young professional, or you're a parent with young kids, and you just want to get something that's you know nutritious, it's wholesome, it's not junk food. You want it quick. It's it's a great solution, and that, that's true in, in both countries. Um, I, sorry, I had a question related to your marketing strategy. Uh, does that strategy go through KOLs? Have you thought about any KOLs that you would like to have, uh, well, advertising your product? I, mean, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay or, or whatever, I don't know. Mm. Um, 
any thoughts about that or? Sure. Uh, so here in China, we uh, we've done some KOL stuff. Uh, had had okay results. I think what, what our strategy is right now is working more with KOCs, uh, mm-hmm. which KOCs are like grassroots KOLs. So uh, maybe we explain to the audience sure. what is it? KOL is like an influencer, mm-hmm. and how is KOC different? So they're just different by one letter, right? So K- <laughs> KOL is a key opinion, opinion. leader, yeah. right? So this is someone that has tens of thousands of fans, millions of fans, right. and they're looking to them. So this could be a you know Gwyneth Paltrow, it's a you know A-lister or someone who focuses on on food or lifestyle, whatever. Uh, they've got fans on social media, yeah. and you're you're paying money for them to eat your product, to plug your product. Um, sometimes a lot of money. Uh, KOCs are key opinion consumers. Uh, so they are same same idea. They're on they're all on social media. I mean, everyone's on social media. They've they're they're smaller. Uh, so they've got they're usually more localized, uh, grassroots set of 500 fans. You know, a mm-hmm. thousand fans, two thousand fans, and they're a lot they're a lot cheaper uh, and and more flexible mm-hmm. and less corporate. Uh, mm-hmm. So like this this month even this week we're working with 64 KOCs uh, in in cities where we have distribution. That are, I mean, this is this is not someone who's necessarily doing this for the full-time job. And mm-hmm. in fact, if they are, they're probably not a KOC. You know, it's it's a it's a mom who's got a you know she's got, she's got a young kid. Uh, she works as a graphic designer. Uh, she's got her Chinese. Uh, she's got you know two thousand people that follow her, and she posts stuff on on being a mom, on, on parenting, on on kids brands. And which on, channel? On food. So it can be various channels, right? Any specific channel? Uh, red is one of our ma- major focuses. Xiaohongshu. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which it's uh, you know skews skews female you know mm-hmm. skews female skews, skews young you know, a lot of parents there. Uh, people are looking for consumer brands. Um, we're also we're still doing. I mean, uh, we're doing things like Douyin. We're doing Weibo. We're doing WeChat. Uh, this particular these two campaigns are focused on red. Um, and the idea was that we we could go out and spend a lot of money on a KOL. And uh, you know, we're, we will do those kind of things in the future, but oftentimes, to me at least, that that comes across as this corporate, you know, corporate yeah. sponsored thing where I give this guy a hundred thousand RMB and he goes out and plugs a product. Versus KOCs, they're you know they're like the you know your neighbor, right? Yeah. And they're more credible. They're they're trusted by their grassroots. This totally networks. makes sense. And uh, how how does it work? Maybe more in details. Like you say, it's cheaper, which makes sense, right? They have uh, not as many followers as KOLs. Um, Can I interrupt you one second? Sure. You know that we have a camera limitation, right? We are right. stuck at 30 minutes, so we're going to take right. a short break. Come back with that uh, that sure. question, okay? All right. So we were talking about the uh, KOLs, KOCs. Yeah. Um, you said that you're working with KOCs uh, right now, quite a lot, like 64 this week. Yeah. Um, and uh, I want to know, like, how, how does it work? So, do you give them the material? Because that would be a bit less organic, right? Mm. Um, how do you you need, do you need to provide it? And you said it's quite cheap. Like, is it enough to just give them some free bauza? Or how, how does it? Sure. Uh, so we we are giving them free bauza, sure. and then we're we're paying them on top of that. Uh, so we, we do we do give them some background information. You know, mm. we uh, things on how to heat the product. Because uh, the the last thing you want is for you know for an influencer to be. Heating your products in the wrong way, and then I'm it doesn't have a bad experience. <laughs> uh, I've only had that a couple times this week. Um, uh, like I think twice yesterday, we had to send videos back because they were preparing the bouts wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we give instruction to make sure that they are delivering the correct message, 
but we and we tell them some things about the products, you know, so just so they know, you know, what's the about the nutritional aspects and the high quality ingredients. Uh, so they have uh, some you know material to, to work from, but then we try not to micromanage too much because if it if you do too much of that, yeah. it sounds too corporate, and and mm -hmm. we want it to be more grassroots. Is it like those kind of people? They uh, subscribe to some agency basically, and They're, how do you find them? Yeah, so they, they're working with the MCN, uh, Multi-Channel Network, which is an agency that manages them. So mm -hmm. you go to the agency, the agency has a stable of hundreds or thousands of these kind of people, and you choose people that, that fit your demographic, that fit your lifestyle, that have the same values as you. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, the, what's the call for action, and how do you measure the results? It's, uh, it depends. Uh, so, for example, we, we sell on Homa, which is a uh, you know, nationwide supermarket channel. Uh, we're selling on their online platform. And there's not a there's not a direct click through, so you can't just like watch a video and click through to buy on Homa. So we'll have the you know in the video or the the text that, that someone the KOC is posting, they'll they'll say where we're available to buy, but it's not a direct you know you can't directly measure the ROI. Uh, for some platforms like Taobao, there is a direct you know you, you see it you can click on a link you go buy. So there's a not from WeChat, direct. right? You can. So yeah, so there's China is a bit weird. There's all these different ecosystems, yes. and especially when you have the intersection of you know, online, you know, online e-commerce platforms usually have a more direct connection. But if you want to push people to go to offline stores or to go to a different app That's and okay. use it, it's you know, there is. Uh, we do want to see sales go up, but we're also just trying to build a general brand awareness, you know, so mm -hmm. people know what the product and the brand is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I don't think the U.S. has that. Um, and, you know, in China, on Douyin, you yeah. can't write WeChat. It's blocked. The word is blocked. Yeah? Yes. Weixin, you cannot write it on Douyin. So you cannot tell your Douyin followers to follow you on uh, Weixin or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And vice versa. Uh, a lot of these kind of things in China. I yep. don't think it's like that in other countries. I, you know, I've been in China for so long. This yes, is the market I'm most familiar with. But right. uh, no, th there are a lot of silos like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the tech giants that are behind these platforms are protective. And they don't want you migrating from one platform to another. So right. you have to duplicate efforts in, in different platforms and right. just kind of accept it for what it is. Yeah. When you end up with different platforms doing exactly the same that the other ones are doing. Like just, just yesterday or two days ago, Twitter came out with feeds, right. which is basically... Snapchat right. of a right. They're copy ago. from each other, right? <laughs> the stories now. LinkedIn has stories. Yeah, you know? they will follow the same path. I mean, yeah. Why? Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I want to go more, more into like, there is a lot of things going on in your life, right? Mm. It's not just Bauza. Mm. Uh, what's the name of your Mexican restaurant in uh, Beijing? Q Max. Q Max. Q Max. Q Max. Q Max. What does it? Well, what does it mean? There's there's a story. Uh, it's just the letter Q and Mexican Mexican. So quality Mexican. There's I know it's it's up, up to your interpretation. And how many restaurants do you have? Uh, we have four in Beijing. Four in Beijing. Okay. And has it been successful since when uh, you opened it? And yeah, we've been at it for about six years. Uh, and is it fast food or just sit and enjoy the whole experience? Not doing tacos. Full service. Uh, not tacos. Mm -hmm. um, Full-service restaurants, so you know, 300 square meters or so. Uh, okay. Some a little bigger, some a little smaller. Um, they are restaurants that uh, I'd say you know, medium to medium to high end. Uh, mm -hmm. So 140 RMB per person kind of kind of places. Um, we try to. It's not formal dining. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we have you know, great food. The, the Mexican ambassador likes to come to our restaurants. But we're not going for the super high end, and uh, it's also it's a, it's a restaurant and bar. 
so people will stay until, you know, uh, summer locations will stay until one, two, three in the morning. Well, one more, tequila, right? Yes, <laughs> one more tequila. Uh, so we, we have pool tables and quiz nights and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, one thing, we spoke about the F&B business in China the other day, right? And uh, one thing that uh, has changed, I think, and that uh, foreign restaurants owned by foreigners cannot count on foreign customers anymore, mm. right? Um, I mean, before it was a bit easier to do that. Um, still not a good idea, even before, I guess, right? Mm. How, what's the percentage of your customers at the restaurants, uh, foreigners versus Chinese? Well, it's definitely gone down. Uh, and that's that's not because there are less foreign, fewer foreign customers, but they're just more Chinese customers. Right. Uh, so, I mean, when you're, in, you know, for speaking from my experience in Beijing, which is where I'm, you know, based, uh, foreign customers are, you know, kind of easier to get in at the beginning. Uh, they're you know, familiar with the product. They they're know familiar they're with the products. Uh, there's less education required. You know, tacos, burritos, people know what that is. Uh, so, when we first started, I think it was, it was a much higher percentage. Like even 40, 50 percent of the customers were foreign. And now, by this point. Um, I would say it's probably 90% Chinese. Wow. Um, so the foreign, foreign customer numbers have gone up, but just a lot more Chinese have learned what Mexican food is, and they've, they've become repeat customers. So. A lot of foreigners that open restaurants uh, uh, make a mistake, what I think is a mistake, right? They're trying, okay, they know the right thing, I need to attract Chinese people, I got foreign food, oh, let's change the taste a little bit. Mm. Yeah, so I guess your restaurant is very authentic, or? I. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, we have uh, so it's a Mexican restaurant. We have we have two different brands within that. There's Qmex Bar and Grill and Qmex Taqueria. Qmex Taqueria is a bit more of the more Mexican Mexico City sort of style. And Qmex Bar and Grill, we also have burgers and pizza and pasta. So we try to do a, you know a good job with everything that we serve. And with with Mexican food, I mean, Mexico is a very diverse culinary nation. There's a huge variety of what Mexican food is. There's not just one type of authentic thing. So one of the things we tried to do was you know, curate, you know, and there's also California Mexican, there's, there's Tex-Mex, there's a lot right. of different wrinkles on what Mexican food is. So we have tried to make things that are you know, authentic and that they would be well-received in California, uh, well-received in Texas, well-received in Mexico City. Uh, and also curate a bit. So there's there's a wide variety of Mexican food, but not every Mexican dish is going to work in China. So it's not that you necessarily change the flavor to work in China, but that you just don't choose some of the things that would be common in Mexico because they're, they're just not going to be accepted by the Chinese people. Well, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you a question, um, just wanting to know if this has ever crossed your mind and whether this is possible in China. You just mentioned California, and California is known for taco trucks, yeah, or other parts of America as well. Um, you don't see that many truck foods in, in, in China. Um, but is that something that has ever crossed your mind? Sure. We have a, we have a food truck at QMX. Yeah. Um, we first use it for uh, an event uh, sponsored by the Mexican Cultural and Tourism mm -hmm. Bureau. Uh, we did a big event in Chaoyang Park for several weeks, uh, ended up with this truck. We've then used it for, I think, one other big event. And it's, right now it's parked and basically used as a warehouse uh, because it's a, it's a regulatory issue, and it's okay. a real estate issue. So you can't just drive around, park it wherever. You have to get permission from the landlord, go through this whole complicated process to be allowed to set up and serve food. Uh, so it's it's not something that made a lot of sense for us to, to really put, put effort into. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would love to see that happen, but I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. It's interesting to, to see, I wonder why this hasn't actually 
happened in China, the whole idea of a taco truck or, or just food trucks, because... Um, Licenses. Imagine Balta, Balta yeah. on yeah. a truck. This is I mean, when when we first uh, we first working on the uh, you know the original Bowza idea, one of our thoughts was to use the, the food truck and have skin it as a Bowza truck. We actually had a graphic designer do an entire design for the food truck with Bowza <laughs> skins. We don't need a lot of space. It's pretty you know not a whole lot of equipment to make, and we sort of gave up on that just because of all the, the licensing issues. Like in Dongguan, I think only Songshan Lake is a, uh, allowing food trucks. And maybe there is one company and that has a license. It just, it just looks like a truck. No, no, they can, move, they can move. In a pool party, we had a food truck that came from Songshan Lake inside. Mm. Um, but it's nothing like the U.S. But, I mean, uh, you know, we all been in China for a long time. And if we, we're not China, I think you won't be surprised if in 10 years from now, suddenly mm. you got more of that, I think. Sure. Right. The other question that I had related to your Mexican restaurant is, um, how do you handle some ingredients that are, I would say, hard to get here? Let's say the pico de gallo, for example, or or avocado for guacamole. Mm -hmm. um, Is it different now? From? Do you have them? What do you substitute them for or, or with? I remember when we used to. Uh, I remember uh, living in here. I remember um, going to Hong Kong to get avocados. <laughs> yeah. I remember that 2004, 2003. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Avocados are not really something you can substitute for. You gotta have yeah, to yeah, use gotta avocados. Have real thing. Uh, so I mean, we, we buy lots and lots and lots. You know, ten, tens and tens of thousands. Are of, they grown in China or? They're mostly imported. Uh, but avocados have become pretty popular here. I mean, they're they're a superfood. You can find them at, you know, just down the street. You can find them at supermarkets here. Right now, so, yes. Yeah. Now, yes. Uh, so it, it's become. Where do you bring them from, sir? What's up? Where do you bring them from? Let's see. I'm actually Thailand. not sure where the Usually there right is now. Mexico and there is Chile, I think. Oh, but that's too far. I mean, I've seen some in Southeast Asia. Really? Like Thailand, I think, or... Maybe. I don't know. That's what I was asking. I, I don't know where's our, where ours are coming from right now. I know okay. even... There, there's even um, avocados that come from Turkey. Um, hmm. But there, there's a there's a pretty big market for it for it right now. Uh, they're, they're not cheap. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, getting avocados here is, is pretty expensive. So if you're going to be running a Mexican restaurant, you kind of have to bite the bullet and just... Pay, pay what it's cost, you know. Right, <laughs> and um, what what do you about opening a restaurant in Beijing? is very different than opening a restaurant in uh, a, a smaller scale cities, right? Mm. Would you consider opening a restaurant in a city like Dongguan, or uh, uh, I don't know? I guess there are many cities like that, right? Mm. Or is it something that you would say be careful of? I mean, we definitely plan to bring QMAX beyond Beijing. Um, you know, this this year with COVID kind of slowed down our expansion plans a little bit. I think most people in the industry was uh, the same. Uh, but yeah, we, we see this as becoming a regional and national national brand. Um, when you look at there, there are other people that have gone you know gone national uh, from uh, people like Element Fresh, people like Wagas, people like Blue Frog. I think there's a possibility to do that. Uh, I mean, Beijing is our is our home, and it makes sense to get to a certain size there before expanding further and stretching the team. But yeah, we definitely see this not not just as a Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen kind of thing. How many Mexican restaurants are there in Beijing? Oh boy, uh, a lot. <laughs> there's uh, there's a surprising amount. I mean, yeah. the, the you know your basic just to do a taco or to do a burrito, you're using pretty, pretty simple ingredients. Uh, so a lot of people have done that. Um, I mean, we don't. We don't see other people making Mexican food as a, as a bad thing. We're just kind of educating the market. You know, even Taco Bell coming here, they're mm -hmm. giving free publicity to educate Chinese consumers on what a taco is. Um, 
there's, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 Mexican restaurants in Beijing, easily. Would you recommend, uh, uh, let's say, um, a chef that's watching this show right now in other countries, never been to China, but is not doing so well, right, mm. uh, in some other countries, would you recommend someone like that to come and try in China, to open a restaurant? Trying to come to China, you know, if you're based somewhere else, you want to come to China and open a restaurant with no experience here, is that's going to be a challenge. Um, I mean, coming here, uh, coming here with, uh, you know, with a partner, coming here to work for an existing group and eventually go on. Just coming here day one, no China experience. I'm going to open a restaurant. Maybe, but it's it's not a it's not as simple as just you know turning the lights on and serving good food. It's not, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, so since you're, you're 20 years ago, right? You studied uh, East Asian studies in Harvard. You studied some Chinese there. You studied in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, is this what you envisioned 20 years uh, after? Because uh, I mean, you must have put some thought into why would I choose? And also, Eastern why did you choose that? Yeah. You know, I, I started off doing East Asian studies uh, thinking I was going to just learn Chinese language and be a linguist or polyglot at least. Um, I did French and Spanish and German in high school. I like foreign languages. I uh, started learning Chinese and it sort of kind of grows on you. And uh, it's also, I found it hard to really, really take a deep dive on the language without also learning the literature and philosophy and history. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started off learning Chinese before I'd spent time here. So in uh, 2000, I was in Taiwan for a summer. Uh, 2001, 2002, I was in Beijing, and it just uh, it just kind of felt right. Um, you know, it was an exciting place, really really dynamic. Um, I, I was I was in Beijing in 2001 when China uh, exceeded to the WTO, and you know a lot of changes. I, I was also there in, in uh, summer 2001 when China when Beijing won the 2008 Olympic bid, and you just saw all the all these changes happen you know happening in rapid fire. Uh, so. I kind of wanted to be part of that part of that dynamism. Um, you know, I, I I thought then and still think that China is going to be, you know, China's development is going to be one of the most important stories of the 21st century. Um, so I didn't necessarily expect to be doing Mexican food and steamed pizza buns uh, when but I when I first started in China. Yeah, I uh, you know I looked at academia, looked at a few other things, and um, investment banking for me was uh, really about about learning. About getting getting experience with business, which is new to me when I started, and when I when I left that, it was about doing something that, yeah, it was, it was business, but something I kind of felt good about. And you know, food is food is something I love because it's everyone has to eat every yeah. single day. It's not like fashion or something where you can have it. You don't really need the, the spring 2021 line from this group, but you got to eat. And if people are going to be eating, you know, being able to serve them something that's that's good, that brings a smile to their face. You know, they come into your restaurant, they have a good time, and they celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, or even for you know for something like Bowser, they're eating at home, something that you know their, their kids love and their parents are happy because it's easy to make. It's just a really tangible, tangible kind of thing that that it's fun to do. Um, um, I'm sure <clears throat> you are pretty much in touch with what's happening in terms of the international business. Um, are you familiar with the RCEP that was signed just a couple of days ago? The whole regional uh, ASEAN plus China agreement in which there's going to be no tariffs. Um, do you follow those news? Or? I, in general, yes. Yeah. Uh, these last couple of days have been just wall-to-wall -wall meetings, so okay. I, I've seen seen the headlines and kind of it's on the list to, to read more about after mm -hmm. after this craziness yeah. goes away. Because that's that's going to be super interesting for anybody trying to import or export just no tariffs. That's uh, pretty pretty remarkable. The I want to 
I want to yeah. talk a little bit about life in China, right? Just sure. before we are going to finish. Um, so you've been here 20 years on and off. I mean, Taiwan too before, right? And uh, now being an expert in China has changed, right? Over sure. the years. Yep. I mean, I've never lived in Beijing. I've been there a couple of times. Mm. Um, uh, and even that is different than a city like Dongguan, of course, right? But uh, in general, probably in a similar way, living as an expert in China has changed. How? What's your attitude towards that? You know, some people, uh, some people keep complaining about stuff all the time. Uh, you know, different attitudes. What? What is yours? Uh, I mean, I, you kind of accept China for what it is, right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna change China. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's it's you know, being an expert here has certainly changed. I mean, being a Chinese person here has certainly changed, right? Yes. You're not gonna change China, but China is changing. China changes you. Uh, some there's there's been good changes and there's been bad changes. You know, um, in Beijing, you know, I I love Beijing for for being a little bit gritty. You know, it's a, it's a little bit gritty. It's uh, you know the the people are are real. Uh, it's not as maybe not as international or polished as a, as a Shanghai, uh, but Beijing has become a little bit less gritty. You know, mm -hmm. some of the some of the dive bars and some of the joints that I would used to go to are they're not open anymore. Uh, it is it is more polished. It's more sophisticated, which you know has has good and bad sides. Um, you know, for our uh, you know our restaurants have evolved as well. Uh, so there are you know if you want to go out and get good Mexican, you know, good French, uh, good Peruvian, there are those kind of things that there wouldn't have been ten years ago or twenty years ago for sure. Right, and we still don't have them here. <laughs> uh, we can visit Beijing for that, but like. Um, is there is there a type of a, a person, you know? Is it like the type of a foreigner that could be living in China happily, and that that's something that we can define, and the types that just come here for two years and just want to get the hell out of here? I mean, there's a there's a lot of different ways to experience China. You know, not everyone has to stay here for 20 years. You can definitely come and just experience you know the, the huge cities right and the, the I mean, almost any city you go to any big city it's going to be relatively dynamic right? versus you know in, in in the west you have cities that have been around for hundreds of years and haven't really had much population growth for the last 50 years or 200 years that's that's not a chinese city right i mean dongwan if you look at dongwan now versus dongwan oh, yeah, five or yeah. ten or 15 years ago it's just completely different right so not everyone wants that kind of pace of rapid change. Um, you kind of have to accept China on its own terms and be pretty adaptable to be happy here. I would if say that that's, that's one of the most uh, common uh, features of anybody who wants to make it here. Being adaptable, as you say, being flexible and I think I think one definition of the people like us that stay here and still happy here and not planning leaving anytime soon, um, and I think Bram said it, um, in another podcast that uh, people that enjoy the unpredictable yeah the quick changes mm. uh, it's it's interesting to see right mm. um, we don't want just the mundane lifestyle mm. I think that's maybe one of the things do you agree with that yeah sure yeah the survival instinct uh, my father used to call it a BMX rider instinct mm. just What's 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 ahead of this turn? What's gonna happen after this bump? What's like just moving, 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 moving? And it's even a hole because after a while, if you do go back, you may be like nothing's happening here. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, coming off from some you know yeah very monotonous and dull. Yeah, <laughs> I mean when I go back to the U.S., it definitely it's a reverse culture shock for mm -hmm. sure. 
Uh, I mean, even even going to like a New York. Feels and you're from from Kentucky. Kentucky, right? Yeah. So even going to New York, it is still reverse culture shock. It still feels kind of slow. <laughs> New York kind of <laughs> slow. That's kind of funny. Uh, I mean, and, and if you look at the chain, the the speed of change in New York. Uh, look, I mean, you look at a picture of this. Pick any street in New York. Look at a picture now versus a picture 20 years ago. Same. It's yeah. gonna look about the same. The buildings yeah. are the same. There's mm -hmm. obviously there's construction. There's new things happening. You know, brands come in and out. New restaurant options, but nothing compared to the, the changes that are happening in Dongguan or Shanghai or Beijing. Right. How do you feel when you go back? Well. Colombia is Colombia. Colombia is very. I'm from Colombia. I don't know. I didn't mention that before. So for me, it's like going back a few decades into China. We we still haven't built a tunnel that's right. very necessary right. for the last 40 years. Right. So it's yeah, it's like you're going back to a not moving picture. Can be nice for a holiday, right? Yeah. 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 But one of the greatest things is introducing my wife to where I come from. Right. But really, it feels like it's. it's it's a picture that's not moving. Right. Pretty much the same situation. Right. So, I mean, uh, what, what's uh, your plans for, for the future? Are you in China? Are you going to stay in China? Um, are you going to try new businesses? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Yes, um, yes, and yes. I'm here in China. I, I'm enjoying, enjoying being here right now. Mm -hmm. uh, enjoying the ride. Uh, liking what I'm doing. No plans to leave. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I'm, I'm not committing. Uh, on, on air to being here for the rest of my life, but uh, this is this is the right place for me and for my wife and you know for the companies right I'm doing right now. Growing a family in China and everything, yeah. Yep. Your wife is uh, Chinese. Yes. Okay, and you, and you speak Chinese very well. That's another thing that is very, I would say, helpful. Mm. Uh, we always laugh at it, right? Yeah. Me and you that we are. Our Chinese is crap. Yeah, our Chinese <laughs> is not far from being good enough. <laughs> but I guess that's another thing that uh, with the other thing we discuss uh, help you to uh, you know with businesses and everything else. In Beijing, there are many foreigners that speak Chinese. Probably more a than lot. cities like maybe Beijing would be the most, right? I'd say on a, on a per capita basis, the percentage of you know Chinese speakers in in Beijing is going to be higher than than most most cities in China. I'd say uh, because of the embassies and all that kind of work. And the, the kind of people that it draws, you, mm -hmm. you get a lot of kind of longer term China hands versus Shanghai mm -hmm. is just a more international city. People mm -hmm. come in, work, have fun, party, go to the bun, leave. Uh, so you get a lot of Chinese speakers in Beijing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's speaking Chinese is definitely helpful for a lot of situations. I mean, you can you can come here and, and do things without, but you're just gonna have that extra layer of, of headaches and communication and it just things are not as smooth if you're not able to communicate fluently. Do you have any any favorite place in Beijing? Any favorite places? Uh, like what what kind of places? No, like not not a restaurant. You know, like your favorite place to go to in Beijing. Yeah, I live uh, I live right down the street from Chaoyang Park, which is I think it's the the largest urban park in Asia. Um, oh, okay. So it's it's uh, you know comparable to like a central park, a little bit smaller in New York. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I have got my annual pass and. Uh, I need to pass to the park. Yep. yep. Right. So it's uh, you, you have to pay to get in, but the annual pass it's like twelve dollars for a year. Oh, uh, okay. So it's not not crazy amounts. Right. But there's there's lakes, there's uh, there's lakes, there's trees, there's flowers. It's you can kind of feel like you're out of just the urban crush for a while, you know. So. All right. Look, um, we could go on and on. I'm talking about Bauza, right. which is uh, a really revolutionary product, um, but. We need to wrap up uh, this show. Um, Ziv, 
Right. Any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm I'm so happy. You know, we got to meet you, and we had opportunity to to do this together while you're here in Guangdong. Thank you also. <laughs> um, I'm probably going to order some uh, baozi from Taobao. Awesome. Right. Or from the spa right here. Mm. <laughs> and we're happy to let people know about this very unique product. Um, it's nice to see foreigners in China inventing something like that. This is really cool, I think, yeah. and succeeding, you know? And uh, also looking forward next time I go to the US to, to get it there too. Awesome. Um, thank you for being here with us today. All right, thanks we guys. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. And this was, of course, China. Bye guys.